0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
0: Coming up on this week's show, How to Make Your Own NES at Home. How to
1: Use Your Game Boy to Steal Cars. And we're joined by Legendary Games Journo
2: Jazz Rignol.
0: Hello and welcome to The Retro Hour podcast, episode number 233, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, me, Ravi Abbott,
1: and me, Joe Fox.
0: And a very warm welcome to this week's show as we get ready to reminisce about classic video games, fill you in on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech over the last seven days, and the bit you really come for bringing you a very special guest that's why people listen to this podcast isn't it not to hear us three banging on it's to listen to these legendary guests that we bring you every week on the show actually you know i say that we did like a survey about a year ago do you remember um and it was like we wanted to know why people listen to the retro hour podcast so we put it on our socials it was like you know do you listen for the news and like us three or do you listen for the guests and i think it was exactly 50 50.
2: Yeah, it was pretty much fifty fifty. <laughs> Some people like, oh, I, I just listen to the news and turn off the guests. Some people like, oh, I listen to the guests straight away. It was it was really good. And also we did one and we did one which was who would you like on the retro hour? Yeah. And the amount of people that said they wanted this week's guest, who is Julian Jazz Rignall. And my God, this guy has done so much for video games and video game culture. So he started off as a High score gamer. So he was really good at gaming himself, became a video game journalist, started working with Emap and launched Meme Machine magazine, which was absolutely amazing. I remember him on Games Master um showing off that mullet and he was the most
0: famous mullet in gaming, wasn't (laughs) he, back in
2: the day? (laughs) He was on the BBC as well. And then he went to IGN and led their kind of online expansion which is absolutely amazing because they're one of the biggest gaming networks in the world. They probably are the biggest gaming network. And also, he was a software director of Virgin, so he was doing games like The Lion King, Jungle Book, but also that legendary, really
0: weird, unreleased, ultra-violent game, Thrill Kill. So, I mean, he's got a really interesting history. And, you know, we've done... It's been a while since we did a show about gaming magazines. But, I mean, in the past, we've we've done an episode with Tony Takushi about meme machines. And uh, Gary Penn, who also worked on Zep 64 Um, Steve Jarrett, who, of course, was on Zep, And then he did Official PlayStation Magazine. We did uh, Ben Vost and uh, Tony Horgan, you know, CEO Amiga and Amiga Format. And I always enjoy the episodes that we do about magazines because it's kind of hard to imagine now just what an impact they had in the pre-internet world. I mean, really, that was the only place, especially before TV shows like Games Master came along, where you could find out gaming news. The magazines were so important back then.
2: And there's not been that much transition from magazines to online. And I think that's where Julian's kind of shined. He's managed to kind of take that video game culture and put it out there online. You know, we, we, we still have Games Master magazine around, which is absolutely amazing. And I
0: think it just closed last year, actually. Oh, but no. it did last a long time. <laughs> and that did outlive the show massively, didn't oh, yeah. it? Yes, I mean, you know, we're talking about that golden age of gaming journalism, you know, the, the golden age of computer and gaming mags. And Julian Jazz Rignall, Jazz, he was like, he was a, a rock star in the world of games journalism. So really excited to get him on. And like Ravi said, one of our most in-demand guests. He's going to be coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now let's get straight into the stories this week because there's lots to get through. Actually, a really good week for news. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys are into Lego.
1: I love Lego. Whenever I go to America, I always go to the Lego shops and come back with loads of overpriced Lego that I could have got in the UK. And I just get (laughs) super excited for it. But I am massively hyped for
0: the Lego
1: NES, which is coming out. It looks absolutely amazing.
0: Now, this thing is 2,646 pieces. Now, if I tell you guys, I like the idea of Lego. Yeah. Uh, my missus bought me the um, the Back to the Future DeLorean Lego, which which I think is a... About four hundred pieces. Okay. And I started building that in twenty thirteen and still haven't finished it yet. (laughs) (laughs) That Uh, sounds about right. (laughs) Got a few questions. So this is like a
2: a nice looking NAS built out of Lego with a television. Does it does it work? Does it operate as an actual NAS?
1: No. So essentially what it is, is it's 35 years since the NES came out. Not the Famicom, but the NES. So it's to celebrate that. And it's coming out on the 1st of August. And it is fully Lego. It's not electrical. There's no electronics or anything like that in it. But what you do get with it, which is really cool, is you get a little 8-inch TV monitor, like an 80s style one. And that with the old
0: whole, dial and everything, the, the rotary old, dial, the old know.
1: rotary dial and everything like that, and then you get a cartridge, you get a Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers cartridge, which goes into the into the NES as well, uh, which is really cool. But none of it's electrical; it's all just Lego bricks. But then, what's on the side of the TV is like a hand turning crank, and what that does is it like it's like the only way you can describe it is kind of like a show, but it is Super Mario Brothers, and it's like um, how do you describe it, Dan? It's on like kind a, of the end like of on a, on end a, of like a, a, end of a level, isn't it? Yeah, on like a roller, isn't it? Yeah, and as you turn the crank, the the story, the like the frame moves, if that makes sense. So it scrolls. It's like a it diorama, kind of. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I couldn't think of the word, but that's really, really, really cool. But like Dan says, it's you know two thousand four hundred pieces. It's the kind of thing you're gonna build. It's going to sit there and then like your kid's going to want to play with it. And you're like, no, it's just for display purposes only. (laughs) And and Like you said, it's it's, it's quite expensive because Lego always is.
2: It's
0: about
2: £200 for this. uh, Which
0: actually, you know, you look at some stuff. I mean, I I was in, um, we went to Italy last year, went to the Lego shop um, in Milan. I think it was on a day trip. And there was, um, you know, they're like the Ghostbusters firehouse and stuff like that, these big models. Some of them were like, you know, about 500 euros. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of pieces. I mean, it does generally Lego is quite pricey. And and it goes up in value
2: as well. It it keeps its value like these kits. But um, I don't know if you guys have seen one called the Commodore Brixty 64. (laughs)
1: No, I've not heard of that one. So (laughs) Perifractic
2: Gaming, who we've actually had on the podcast, he built a C64 case out of Lego, and he's got designs that are available so you can get all the right bricks. But the best thing about his was it actually worked. You could put the board in, and the keyboard, the C64 keyboard actually took Lego pieces amazingly well. So he's built a full (laughs) keyboard. He's even got a little... Lego SD card kind of uh, reader as well. It's fantastic. So check out the uh, C64 or Brixty
1: 64. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the next step for Lego. Then they need to do a Lego Technics. NES,
2: Someone's, fully, so gonna fully, fully fully <laughs>
0: Someone's so going to mod functional.
2: Someone's so going to mod this and put like a, a, a mini NES in there. Or something. Yeah,
0: probably. Well, you may looking at it, the size of it. I mean, it, it looks kind of to scale. It looks like it's probably the same size as an original NES. So yeah. I imagine there's plenty of space inside it, you know, for, for some enterprising person to do something like that. But the only thing I think is, you know, it's coming out on August 1st to celebrate, like you said, 35 years. The rate it takes me to build things out of Lego, it'll probably be another 35-year <laughs> celebration of this Lego thing by the time I build it. But, yeah, I do think it looks really cool. I might I might get one and just ask someone like to build it for me. Anyone be want to answer ra- it? Av- av- easy. With- <laughs> me and Ravi would do it you. There you. You've committed to that now. I have committed to it now. <laughs> Now, probably one of the reasons that I don't get a lot of time to um, make things out of Lego is because you know, I'm too busy playing video games, of course. And uh, one of my favourite genres is one of the most time-consuming forms of video games to play, point-and-click adventure games. Now, I know Ravi, you're also a big fan of point-and-click adventure games. Um, you know, we've done episodes about LucasArts games and stuff in the past, and me and you were both hooked on Thimbleweed Park oh, when yeah. that game came Great out a couple game. of years ago. Well, there is a really cool new game that's kind of inspired by classics like Maniac Mansion. And this is a game called Billy Masters Was Right. And if you look at it, it's kind of got that classic LucasArts kind of style. But also, the color palette on it reminds me a bit of, like, the Leisure Suit Larry games. It's got a lot of, like, you know, purples, a lot of blues, a lot of, like, those primary colors in there as well. And the story is that Billy Masters is a teenager. He's been accused of uh, smoking something he shouldn't during high school and accusing his teacher of very serious crimes. And his parents are really sick of his attitude, and they've imposed a curfew on him until he apologises to his teacher. Now, he thinks a sneaky psycho is at work at his neighbours, and he'll do anything to convince the world that indeed Billy Masters was right all along. So essentially, this is a short adventure game where you've got to go around, you've got to find the clues and kind of solve this mystery, really, to, to prove his innocence. It looks really cool and like the color palette, it does It does look exactly um,
2: like Manic Mansion, uh, Maniac Mansion. I always call it Manic Mansion and uh, <laughs> it's it's got that kind of CGA look and, and the way that the art's done. Really
1: looks fantastic. If you're into that kind of stuff, I'd I definitely go for this game. What's really interesting about it is well, am I right in saying that this just plays in Windows? It's not come out on anything. It's just no, it's a
0: free download for Windows. Free download yeah. for Windows, yeah, that's really cool. 15 yeah, meg it, as well. Yeah, that's the thing. 15 meg, you look at it and you think... I was thinking, God, that's tiny, but you remember stuff like Monkey Island 2. You know, that, that was probably only about 11 megs, wasn't it? So, yeah. You know, for these kind of games, that, that probably is There's quite a lot in there. But it is apparently quite a short game. Um, But obviously, you know, it's getting a great reaction looking at all the comments on the website here as well. People are loving it. So I'll give it a download. I'll, uh, I'll have a play this weekend, let you guys know what I think. But I always love to see the genre getting a bit of love as well. And especially, there's something about those kind of old school, the ones that haven't got talking in them. You know, you just got to kind of put yourself in there and read the text on screen. I was having to think about this the other day, actually, because I was playing a few of the old um, Infocom Zork adventure games that are literally, it's text on a black screen. You know, no graphics, anything like that. But there is something about it. I kind of equate it to, you know, the difference between watching a TV show or reading a book. There's something quite immersive about it, isn't there? Yeah, I think you know, the story all goes on in your brain then, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, there, there is something I, I really like about these kind of classic kind of textile adventure games. So I'll link that up in our show notes if you want to give it a try and everything else we talk about this week at theretrohour.com. Now, let's give a shout to to um, a really cool project that I know you'll be really into, Ravi. And this is by a good friend of the show, Mike Clark. Of course, legendary musician, worked for Psygnosis back in the day. Um, also, probably his most famous work. Uh, did the Retro Hour theme tune as well. Well, he's got and you plug in if you're a fan of SID music, and this is called Insidious.
2: Yeah, this looks absolutely wicked. So if you've got like a digital audio workstation nowadays, you get these plugins or like VSTs, and uh, it's usually a virtual synthesizer. And this one seems to be totally about C64. And, you know, and the SID sound. And I've, I've seen a lot of plugins, and I've seen a lot of stuff that's, claims to kind of recreate that sound but it really doesn't and it doesn't sound like the original stuff you know a lot of the time I'm always on about the original hardware but some of the stuff on this is absolutely amazing and some of the people involved as well you've got like sounds by Rob Hubbard, uh, Martin Galway, uh, Chris Halsbeck, you know uh, Mike Clark and uh, TDK as well so you've got a load of top artists here kind of getting involved and it's fully compatible with all your MIDI and your NKS kind of stuff. So if you're really into your sound and you want to use your your new equipment rather than get stuck into that
0: old-school tracking, <laughs> then uh, this is the way to go. I mean, like you said, then looking at that list, I mean, Rob Hubbard, Chris Hillsberg, TD, I mean, that is like a who's who of people famous in the Commodore 64 SID scene, isn't it? So having sounds and endorsement by... Those kind of people that that gives us a lot of credibility. And I mean, you know, Mike Clark, also an amazing musician, who's worked in video games for decades now as well. And uh, I I think you know you make a good point there about the original hardware. I mean, it did have a kind of unique sound to it. That even, I mean, the later Commodore sixty four couldn't actually emulate all that well. You remember when the um, the sixty four C came out Mm. and it changed the SID chip and it had like that really weird filter on it. And you know, to this day, SID purists won't go near that model of Commodore 64, just because it doesn't sound right. But a lot of effort has gone into this plugin to make it sound like that authentic, original, warm SID sound that, you know, is really important if you're into doing that kind of music.
2: Yeah, it says it emulates it uh, with ultimate precision, which is exactly what you need when you're kind of going for that retro sound.
0: So it's um, launched at $64 for the plug-in, but there's a, an introduction sale on as well. So I'll link that up uh, in our show notes if you want to check it out. Definitely worth doing if you're a fan of uh, SID music. I mean, it's, it's just nice and having to, you know, there's only a limited amount of original SID chips. And <laughs> I know there are millions of them, but, you know, the, the break every day and people yank them out to put in different projects. So having something this accurate, I think, is really good. Now, what about using... A Game Boy in quite a unique way. Um, I don't imagine any of us guys are into stealing cars. I must admit, it's not nothing I've ever taken part in in the past. And we're not going to teach you how to do it. But no. <laughs> so essentially, there's a device that looks like an old school Game Boy that is being used to commit Grand Theft Auto.
2: Yeah, I've, I've kind of seen these around. So I, I, I like looking at the darker side of stuff. And um, uh, a lot of times there's been these jammers. And these jammers tend to jam keys on certain frequencies and as cars turn a bit digital you know your tesla you you just turn it on with a with a tiny car (laughs) it's really weird so as that comes out though there's always these jammers because it all kind of works on fm still and uh, it seems like someone's actually put one of these gadgets inside a game boy so i assume that it's kind of so people can look like they're using a Game Boy <laughs> and playing Tetris. And actually, they're up to something uh, very dodgy and
1: illegal. Well, what makes it- me laugh about this was me and Ravi were talking about it earlier on. This These devices are actually completely legal to buy in Bulgaria where this happened. And yeah. it just says on their website when you buy it, like, this should not be used for criminal intent. Like, that's all it says, like, <laughs> well, a, make a lot sure them, you don't but... break the law with this.
2: <laughs> it's, it's it's very weird, the laws, because a lot of stuff's legal to buy. So you, I could buy an FM transmitter, but as long as I didn't plug it in and turn it on, it would be fully legal.
0: Really weird.
2: <laughs> so, Actually, yeah. so
1: bizarre.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember reading, um, you know, we've talked about the the Jolly Rogers cookbook before, or the Anarchist cookbook, as it was also known, and this was a collection Um of essentially text documents that circulated on a load of different platforms back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I remember having... A few friends of mine had uh, discs of this at school and it would be like, you know, really weird stuff on there, like uh, how to make dodgy devices at home with things that you could never get your hands on. It was like, you know, just take two drops of plutonium and then you've got your own, (laughs) you know, stuff you're never going to have access to. It was the
2: first uh, published book online, actually. If you you look on uh, Vice, there's an absolutely amazing documentary about the guy that created the anarchist cookbook. And how he totally kind of regrets it now and how it wasn't intended to be used in that kind of way. But I'd say the equivalent of this would be the guy sitting outside McDonald's in the 80s and uh, taking over the um, little thing where you talk to the cars. And put in stupid <laughs> audits and annoying the people and this is the more version yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but i mean you know again with the anarchist cookbook when you loaded that up you got that disclaimer on there that this is just for educational purposes yeah like, you yeah. know like, don't carry any of it out <laughs> so um yeah, if you see someone uh, hanging around the uh, expensive car playing a game boy be very suspicious <laughs> like the porsche garage <laughs> <laughs> does it actually play the tetris music I don't know when when it unlocks a car. Can you imagine? (laughs) Or the little (laughs) (laughs) Mario. And these devices are not cheap. Apparently, they sell for £20,000. So, uh, yeah, the most expensive Game Boy ever. If you have got that kind of money, though, maybe you'd rather spend it on an original sealed Super Mario Bros. game. Now, it seems every time we talk about these, um, you know, classic games in good condition that are sold for a massive amount of money, they just seem to get more and more ridiculous prices. Now, this one, apparently they're saying, is officially the most expensive video game ever sold at public auction a copy went for over ninety thousand pounds what's so special about this
1: well this is the funny thing so it is sealed obviously and it's an original 1985 super mario brothers copy um and what i think is quite funny about it is i'm fairly certain this is the same copy that uh, popped up on the show porn stars last year where a guy came in and he wanted a million dollars for it and they were like look you know you can sell this on an auction site or something. I'm sure you'll get a lot of money for it, but maybe not a million. But what's really interesting about it, what Ravi told me, which I think is absolutely hilarious, is the reason it went for so much. And apparently, it's just because it's got the label hanger on it. The, the little hang tags.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, I think it's, you know, when you hang it on the shelf. Yeah. On that metal, metal spike. On the metal yeah. spike, you push that little bit of cardboard out, and that's a hang tag. <laughs> And I think wow. it's retained that, so it
0: hasn't been put on a shelf, and that's it's crazy that that gives it value. I get it, kind of. I mean, you know, it's a 35-year-old game, and they're never going to make any more of that kind of vintage, obviously. And there can't be many of them out there that are still completely intact the way they left the factory. But, you know, seeing them go for that kind of money... I mean, do you think this is something that, you know, in 35 years from now are, like, you know, Switch games that are sealed going to hold that kind of value?
1: I don't I don't think so, personally, because I've obviously, you know, I mean, I don't know, saying that, I was about to say, the whole, like, we manufacture so many more Switch games these days, you know, compared to games back then and stuff, but it's Super Mario Bros. There must be tens yeah. of millions of them out there, yeah. so I don't know. It's, it's I, a hard one to say.
2: I think it's like the Beatles, you know, like the Beatles records will always be valuable because they were so big and they were, like, huge, weird, yeah. wide, and Super Mario Bros. was, like, so iconic that you know having copies of that is without a scratch or
0: or without this kind of stuff is going to always be a, a record breaking kind of a sale. Yeah and I guess when it's the first game in such an infamous franchise like that I mean you know imagine like you know the, the 15th Mario game probably isn't quite as collectible as the first ever one. Yeah that's true that's a good point. <laughs> But yeah, it makes you wonder who's buying it for this kind of money and why?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, we spoke about it a couple of months ago. There was that dentist who spent a million yeah. on like 15 games or something like that. Um, but he was doing it because of he was like a collector already of like baseball cards. And he did it because he felt the value would increase. It wasn't because he was a video game collector. It was more just a visa, the new antiques. But I'm, it doesn't say in the article who's bought this or anything like that. It's just a private collector who's bought it. So I'm... I'm hoping it's there to go into a private collection. It's not a case of I'm buying this, so I can sell it for two
0: hundred thousand <laughs> you know in thirty five years time kind of thing so see that's the thing. a lot of people are treating them like an investment now I mean i mm-hmm. you know looking at stories like this, I think even if I had that kind of money. I'm not sure whether I'd, I'd actually want to do that, or to I me mean, it just feels like you know you're buying some. I, I get the kind of displaying your collection; it's cool and owning something that a lot of gamers would want. But when it gets into that kind of money, I mean, the other day I was looking at there's like there's a variant of um, the Amiga mouse that I want to complete my collection. I want like um, the white tank mouse for the Amiga 600 and I thought I've got a lot of the cream ones but not the white model I looked on eBay and there's one for 30 quid on there and I thought oh that's a bit pricey even though it's the first one I've seen on eBay in about three or four years separately yeah. so it's uh you know it, it is it's hard to justify even if yeah. I think you can kind of scale your finances to it I don't know I well guess it's, it's
2: let's say we're in Nottingham in the UK that's uh 90,000 is probably a two-bedroom house
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and, and that's the thing if I've got 90 grand spare to buy video games with. I wouldn't want to buy one game. I'd want to buy like, (laughs) I'd
0: want want (laughs) to
1: finish like an entire collection of like for Nintendo. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, I don't know, this guy's obviously got a lot of money.
0: <laughs> I can almost guarantee the guy that's bought this probably does have the entire collection. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else. Yeah, but, more uh, than likely. And it probably so, cost would you, him would, like five grand. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. just jealous. We're just jealous. Yeah, that's yeah. all it is. <laughs> so yeah, if, that, if, if you are listening and you bought it, get in touch and uh, let us know why. We're interested. Now, buy some of our games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe's got a big game collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right now, before we get into our chat with uh, Jazz Rignall this week, talking about the golden age of video game journalism, it's always cool when we see new releases for our favorite consoles as well, and uh, our good friends at Mega Cat Studios, I mean, we, we've done episodes with them in the past, and uh, they, they're like the guys who release a lot of games for the Mega Drive slash Genesis. And there is a great little collection that you can buy from them at the moment um, containing three games. Now, these are sold separately, but these are games that haven't been released on the Mega Drive before. Now, the first one is called Yazzie. And this is a platformer about a gold digger who finds himself deep in a mansion full of treasure and danger. I was looking at this and I thought, that sounds a bit familiar. (laughs) Um, I did a bit of Googling and this game also came out on the Spectrum about two years ago, and it was released on the MSX as well around Christmas okay. time. All right. So this, yeah, looks like it's um, you know it's been released on a few platforms. But the Mega Drive version um, looks really colourful. You got another one called Gluff that's a puzzle platformer about a Tesla frog, which is a unique electrical creature that has to power up sections of each level to to proceed while staying charged up himself. Sounds quite quite original. Then you got one called um, Arcgis Revolution. That's kind of like a top-down shooter game as well. Uh, these games are selling for fifty dollars each. Which actually, if you look at it, these are boxed original Mega Drive cartridges that you know come in the nice packaging, look like they could have been released in like nineteen ninety two. That great quality. Got the manual in there as well. The inlays, all full color.
2: Yeah, and you can get them for forty dollars as well if you just want to get the cart. Um,
0: yeah. But that's pretty close to the original price of Mega Drive games, isn't it? Um, well, if you, if you think of inflation, it's a lot cheaper. I mean, you know, Mega Drive games back then were like 55, 60 quid. That in today's yeah, money would be like double that easily. So,
2: and they've got nice little features. Like, I really like the um, fifty hertz uh, to sixty hertz speed correction. I think. Yeah. I think that's that's really thoughtful. Yeah, they're,
1: they're completely like worldwide, region-free
0: compatible, aren't they? Like, they play on any on any Mega Drive or Genesis, which I think is quite cool. You know, it's really weird. It's only really since YouTube came around that I've kind of known about that kind of 50, 60 hertz kind of rivalry. Because, you know, now if you're watching it on YouTube and like, you all see it in the comments if someone uploads like a video of the PAL version of Sonic the Hedgehog, everyone's like, oh, yuck, it's slow Sonic. But, you know, to me as a kid, that's how it was meant to be. And then yeah. when I eventually saw the NTSC version, I thought like, oh, it's running a bit fast.
1: Yeah, well, interesting you should say that. When um, I had a GameCube and uh, Mario Kart Double Dash came out, my friend used to come over and he used to moan if we played on 50 hertz because he was like, oh, that's the slow version. And we didn't know mm. what it, what that was about. And he was just like, just put it on 60 hertz. It makes the game faster. So we're like, okay. So <laughs> we just <laughs> used to play it on 60 hertz thinking it just made the game faster and we didn't know why.
0: But it changes everything, like the music and everything. Yeah, yeah. Faster. It's like, you know, when the first time I heard it, I was like, that, that's not right, but... Yeah, there are, there are people that just, like, won't look at the PAL versions anymore these days. So, yeah. yeah, it's good they've included that feature. And I think, you know, $50, it's it's more than reasonable for, uh, you know, the amount of effort that goes into these products. So uh, if you want to get hold of them, there's three of them out, separate cartridges, I'll put that in our show notes. And all the other stories we chatted about this week at theretrohour.com. Now, that is also the same place. If you want to help out with this podcast, help us keep going, help with our studio build project that we've got on at the moment as well. Um, obviously, we've got a Patreon running, and thank you so much for that every week, but we really, really do appreciate your support on this. And of course, every penny that we're getting through Patreon, it's all going to be reinvested in the future of this podcast. So, we're not making any profit off or anything like that. Literally, it's a crowdfunded effort. We're all chipping in. Um, I've bought the equipment for our new studio. We just need help with the rent and getting it built, essentially. So, um, that's where you guys come in, and we really appreciate your help so far. And every week, we give big shout-outs in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. We try and get through as many as we can. And this Week, let's give a big shout to a very good friend, Neil from Retro Mancave.
2: Yeah, Neil's absolutely amazing. He's just been doing a Kickstarter and oh my god, it's it's really kicking off. Um check it out. It's his retro tea breaks, and basically he gets a selection of guests and he's
0: put the interviews in book form. Yes, if you like our show, then it's yeah, definitely worth checking that out. you also popped into our uh patrons hangout last month for about 20 minutes as well, didn't you? Yeah, they? man, yeah. And also thank you to Chris Riley, Dirk Sygaard. Alan Pudom and Oliver Masood who all made donations into the running of the show and if you'd like to do the same we'd really really appreciate it you'll find it on our website at theretrohour.com Speaking of Patrons Hangout we're going to do another one this coming Sunday evening So if you're a patron, you'll find the link in there. Uh, Eight o'clock Sunday night, we're all going to hang out, just chat about retro. Um, All three of us on there, so it's always a giggle. If you haven't joined us before, um, sign up to the patron. I mean, literally, it'll cost you, like, the price for a cup of coffee once a month. And you can join us on there as well. Plenty more perks. You'll find that all at theretrohour.com. Right, then, coming up next, we are going to be joined by gaming journalist rock star Julian Jazz Rignall is our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, today, we're going to be returning to the golden age of video games and magazines with an absolute legend of a journalist and one of our most in-demand guests. It's our pleasure to welcome him to the Retro Hour podcast, Julian Rignall. Welcome to the show, Jazz.
3: Hello, and uh, thank you for the uh, very warm welcome. I appreciate that. <laughs> well,
0: we're going to get into some uh, stories about your time working on magazines like Zap and Me Machines and Games Master that we can't wait to hear about. I mean, the thing is, whenever, you know, we see you mentioned in the retro gaming community... You're always known as, like, you know, the most famous mullet in gaming in the eighties and nineties. Which I imagine the mullet's long gone now. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's um, yeah, very long gone. I, I lost that in the early nineties when I moved out to the states and realised that it was incredibly uncool at that point. So uh, I had it chopped off. But uh, yeah, it was legendary mullet. It was uh, quite spectacular, especially in the uh, the late nineties. Uh, sorry, the late eighties <laughs> when I had hair down to my backside, basically, and uh, and, a, and a short front. So uh, yeah, and something <laughs> that I'm not exactly proud of, but uh, but it, it sticks in people's minds the crazy hair that we had when uh, we were working on magazines back in the day.
2: It is. So we, it's we, like Dave Perry's bandana, you
3: know, yeah. <laughs> your identifying kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was a, definitely a trademark of, uh, of, 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 of my style back then. That and the rugby shirts uh, I was known for wearing. And it was weird that people honed in on specific sort of uh, characteristics of, of, of us, um, you know, and, and, and remember those fondly. But uh, I, I can't complain. That's, that's cool.
0: Well let's get into your kind of history with gaming. I mean what kind of originally got you into video games? Where did your story start with it?
3: Well I started when I was a very young kid back in I think the first video game I played was probably in 1976 so that ages me badly. I grew up in a seaside town in Aberystwyth on the west coast of Wales and we had a local arcade and I used to visit that regularly and play a lot of the uh, electromechanical games that I had and then Uh, some of the early video games like Combat, Pong, I remember playing, and uh, the circus game. And um, so I I kind of really was fascinated by video games, Um, turned out to be very good at them. And uh, I I won the 1983 Computer and Video Games National Arcade Championships. Um, And that that was a pretty amazing experience. And from that... I started to write about how to play video games and people weren't really writing hints and tips much at the time. So computer and video games basically printed some of my, uh, hints and tips and that got noticed me noticed by other magazine editors, specifically Chris Anderson, who was at personal computer games. And, um, I basically got invited to another tournament at that magazine um, in late 1984. From that, uh, again, I kind of started writing hints and tips on playing games for that magazine. And Chris Anderson, basically the magazine got closed down. And Chris Anderson uh, got the job to, to start Zap64 magazine, and he wanted real gamers rather than sort of journalists turned gamers for the magazine. And, um, he gave me a call one night just out of the blue and said, was I interested in writing for, for the magazine? And I said, of course, yes, I couldn't believe my luck because I was unemployed at the time and living in Aberystwyth. there weren't many, uh, employment opportunities. And, um, Went for an interview down in London and he liked me and thought that I was the right stuff. And so I started on Zap Magazine in February in 1985.
2: Well, you must have um, had a home system because you couldn't get to the arcades all the time. So what what were you kind of playing on back then?
3: Uh, My first computer game system was an atari 400 i bought that from a uh, friend of a friend who was a student who'd um who blew his student grant on 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 weed and video games basically and ran out of money and and uh decided to sell the system to me to to raise some funds so that he could actually get home that term and um, so I got that and he had a whole bunch of games with it he, he spent quite a lot of money on it, and I got it dirt cheap, so I was very lucky so so that 's where I first started playing and 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 played a lot of the Atari soft conversions of Williams and Atari coin ops like uh, joust and things like that After that, I got a s- zx spectrum um i had that for a for a year or so and those are the two systems that i had but mainly i mean i used to p- spend a lot of time in the arcades um i used to bunk off school a lot and uh and and do sort of all-day marathons playing games like defender and missile command and asteroids so i'd sort of i was playing games all of the time so i i had a sort of Scope for writing hints and tips from, for PCG and C M V G and uh, that's that's what really brought me to the, like I said, to the attention of uh,
0: Chris Anderson, who hired me. I think it's great that you're you know very skilled game player as well. I mean, you mentioned then about the you know some of the records you held. You actually had world records and game high scores on on several games.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if they were world records at this point. I mean, at the time, C M V G was. Uh, Tracking high scores, and and I used to get a newsletter from America that that, um, that tracked high scores. And so some of my early scores were definitely very very high on games like Defender and and, and Asteroids. And um, I kind of think that some of them were world records, but I, no, they were never verified, so I don't really know. But you know, bottom line was I was able to play games like Defender for eighteen hours nonstop, and I could just keep playing. Forever, really, until I f- fell asleep. Um, wow. <laughs> and uh, and you know, asteroids was another one that I could play all day. Um, Missile Command was a little bit more difficult because the game would reset if you got too many extra lives. So you had to manage your extra lives very carefully and make sure that you didn't earn more than two hundred and fifty-five cities. Otherwise, the machine would reset. So that was a little bit more difficult to play all day because because of trying to keep track of the extra lives and, and, and the game potentially resetting.
0: I think I struggle to get about 18 seconds on Defender, so uh, <laughs> he's a lot better than me. <laughs> well, did you feel that this was like a career path?
2: Because... Nowadays, the career for video games journalists is like a real set path. Back then, it must have seemed really speculative.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the old cliche of uh, video games won't get you anywhere was 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 uh, told to me by several of my teachers who uh, were sort of fed up with me disappearing uh, off school grounds and 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 they knew where I was, and you know, they'd say it's not going to get you anywhere. But I, you know, I really felt that, um, you know, it was a valid career. You know, there were people at that time. The sort of the first generation of journalists were making money writing about video games, and I just felt like, you know, why can't I do this? I'm good at playing games. You know, I, I, I was good at writing. I, I had always, I'd always um, done well with English in school, so. Like I said, I started contributing freelance wise and got a little bit of money from, from doing that and then and managed to turn it into a full time job, which was uh, you know, very unusual at the time for sure. But, uh, you know, it felt like a, a proper career path.
0: I mean, you know, you mentioned then that was quite interesting about the fact that a lot of people said, you know, video games will get you nowhere. A lot of people thought that there'd only be a bit of a flash in the pan and only around for a couple of years. I mean, did you kind of see the industry lasting like as long as it has or, or did you think?
3: Yeah, I, very much. I thought it was here to stay. You know, when, when I was, uh, I remember sort of in the, the sort of the early to mid 80s before I joined Zap64 magazine, I would sort of imagine what video games would be like. And, you know, I I would play things like the Star Wars Atari arcade game and think, you know, at at some point in the future, this is going to be what video games are like at home. Only they're going to be even bigger and the spaceships are going to be bigger and you're going to be able to fly around them and it'll be all in 3D So I always felt that video games had a huge amount of potential and that that, that it was just a case of the technology becoming available and, and, and getting faster processors and all the rest of it. And that we would see more and more sophisticated video games. So I never had any doubt that it was... You know, it was here to stay, and would always just continue to improve.
2: Well, you mentioned Zap Sixty Four there, and that was an absolutely legendary magazine. How how did you get working there, and uh, what was it like? What was the atmosphere like there?
3: It was it was quite strange. Uh, you know, I, I I started working there in in, in early nineteen eighty five, and you know, literally sort of you know came off the little farm that I grew up in in mid Wales, and and started on this magazine. And, you know, within the first couple of days, I was reviewing games. And, uh, you know, it was the learning experience is quite tough. It was almost like an uh, apprenticeship. You know, I would sort of write these reviews and send them into Chris Anderson, who would edit it and send it back and say, you know, you need to expand on this. You've got you're criticizing this element of the game, but you're not really giving any solutions. And he really taught us how to... You know, sort of review and criticize games, and and in a sort of positive way. You know, if you were going to criticize a feature, then you better kind of come up with some reason why it's that way, and try and explain how it should be, and what what would make it better. So that that was sort of ingrained in us from the very beginning, and it was it was it was an interesting sort of learning process. At the time, I had you know it was difficult for me to take feedback because I was so young and I I, kind of thought that I was writing great these great reviews and looking back at them they were probably pretty ropey but um but I, I eventually learned and 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 sort of picked up the craft and after I guess it took about six months to really get into the general swing of things but uh once once I did I felt that you know our reviews were very honest and on point, and 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 were quite critical, but but like I said, in a sort of a more positive way.
0: I know in the school playground, then it was kind of like you know the the ZX Spectrum versus the Commodore sixty four. That was always like the you know I saw fist fights erupt over that. I mean, was there much rivalry in the magazine industry? Did you see stuff like, you know, Crash and Commodore User as, like, like real proper, like, bitter rivals? What was it kind of like?
3: Internally at Newsfield, you know, there was sort of – we would sort of take the piss out of each other, uh, you know, in terms of sort of uh – you know, the the spectrum isn't as good and, and sometimes the spectrum game would come along like an ultimate game and, and and we'd recognize it as being very good but but we'd still take the piss out of it. So there was a little bit of it wasn't really rivalry, it was just more of um, sort of a, a, a Mickey take in more than anything. The, the real rivalry we had with that was with rival publications like Commodore User. We came out of nowhere and and, and started selling magazines quite strongly. And I think our style was seen as very jarring. You know, it was very personality-driven. We weren't real journalists. We were sort of gamers-turned-journalists. So I think they, they sort of, Commodore User especially, sort of disparaged us, disparaged us a fair bit. And um, Commodore User International called us a fluffy lollipop magazine. Um, <laughs> you know, it just little things like that, you know, where... You could tell that there was sort of some sort of rivalry there. And, and, you know, we eventually became the the top selling magazine. And, um, you know, they'd write little gossip pieces about us and stuff. Nothing too untoward, but there was definitely uh, some strong rivalries between Commodore User and and, Zap 64 for sure. Were there
2: any goals at Zap to kind of cover more Amiga stuff?
3: Yeah, that was uh, that was sort of uh, an interesting situation. You know, sort of after Zap had been around for about 3 years and the Amiga really started to to take off. I really wanted to cover the Amiga in in Zap 64 magazine, but the readership was kind of split over it. Around about half the readership didn't want to see any Amiga coverage at all, and about half the readership wanted to see Amiga coverage. So we did cover the Amiga for a little while, but the decision came down on high to to not cover it anymore. I'm not exactly sure what the reason for that was. Maybe they got some you know too much negative feedback about the Amiga coverage. But I really wanted to. I, f- I felt that it was the future of Zap64 was to cover the Amiga as well. And it eventually be- did become Zap64 Amiga, but not before I sort of left the magazine and joined CMVG. Partly because I wanted to write about other systems other than the Commodore sixty four, and I just was kind of after writing for the Commodore sixty four for about almost three and a half to four years. Uh, I was just sort of bored of the the machine. I'd sort of seen the the glory days of the system and sort of gone through some of the some of the best games that had been released for for the machine, and I just wanted to move on. and And, and I was very excited about. Um, The consoles that were coming out, like the PC Engine, uh, they just seemed really interesting, and exciting to me. I I owned a Nintendo Entertainment System and a Sega Master System. um, And and I love both of those machines, too. And I just felt that if I couldn't write about them in Zap64 and I couldn't write about the Amiga, then,
0: you know, it was time for me to go. I do remember in Zap you, you did like occasionally cover other Commodore machines because um, my brother had a Commodore 64, but I was a kid with the the Commodore Plus Four. Oh dear! Um, <laughs> so I remember what you once did like a, a out about Commodore 16 and Plus Four games, but um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of coverage.
3: No, no, it was you know, I mean, the, the name of the magazine was Zap 64, and that's what mm. um, Ollie and Roger the uh, the owners of newsfield used to argue you know it, it, it it's it's a, it's a commodore 64 magazine that's what it's known for and that's what we should stick to and uh like i said i just just became sort of tired of the commodore 64 and felt like the software was becoming a little bit samey to me and 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 you know, having read about the pc engine in uh, computer and video games magazine and and seen the pictures of r type in particular that just totally turned my head you know it's like wow, these are sort of almost arcade perfect conversions. This is what I want to play. This is what I want to write about. And uh, so I left Zap and and, and joined uh, computer and video games.
0: When he got to computer and video games, I mean, was that a big change from Zap? I mean, we had um, Steve Jarrett on the show, like, last year, and he was saying that EMAP at the time were all on typewriters.
3: Yep, that is absolutely correct. It was a, quite a shock. Um, it was very much a sort of a national union of journalists-run, traditional sort of news outlet. And so we used um, typewriters initially, which just seemed totally insane to me. The process of making the magazine was basically the same way that it had been done for decades. And um, we'd used uh, word processors and sort of direct typesetting output coding um, to produce Zap64 and Crash magazines, uh, which were quite advanced at the time. So it definitely felt like a going a step back and having to sort of write something on a typewriter, take it to the typesetters, have the typesetter then input that into a... The typesetting machine, print it out. We'd then have to go through what were called the galleys, which were the printouts of, of of the reviews, and correct them, have them sent back, and it was just a process that went on and on and on, and it was just so slow compared to you know being able to. Simply write something and spell check it, and 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 re, be able to re-edit it without having to use TipX or some other sort of whiteout. It's, yeah, I definitely felt ridiculous using typewriters, but uh, that was only we only did that for a, for a couple of years, and then my endless whining at my publisher to to set us up on desktop publishing systems. Was ultimately heeded, especially when I figured out that we could produce pages far, far cheaper and far more efficiently than um, the old typesetting process. So uh, we got this new technology in, and um, by the time we started producing Mean Machines magazine, that was it was all done using technology, modern day technology. So um, the magazine was definitely all the better for it.
2: And I bet the uh, office was a bit quieter as well. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Uh, we did have these amazing, you know, the sort of cutting-edge typewriters that did actually have delete buttons, so you could backspace a, a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't like a full editing machine, but you could, if you made a mistake, you could backspace and it would automatically wipe out a letter. So they, they, they were cool machines, built like tanks, but. Uh, Yeah, certainly, uh, their time had come by the time desktop publishing software was uh, available, and uh, it it transformed the way that we made magazines. Well,
2: CVG was multi-platform. Was the kind of balancing act between systems really hard?
3: Yeah, it was. You know, what we we just tended to cover what we felt was the hottest thing that month, regardless of platform. So, you know, while we would sort of try and obviously strike a balance between you know, making sure that we had ZX Spectrum reviews and Commodore 64 reviews and Amiga reviews, so there was something for everybody. Um, You know, we also had the Mean Machines column, which that's where the magazine started. And, you know, when it first started, nobody was that interested in, in console games at all. But through that sort of constantly... Writing about these exciting new machines that were coming out like the p c engine, people began to get excited about them and 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 hype began to finally build for for these new machines that are coming out and the mega drive and eventually the super nintendo so in some respects, you know it was a, a case of sort of balancing existing formats with sort of the exciting new what was the, the sort of the dawn of the console era and 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 writing about that and 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 sort of building reader excitement for those machines, almost creating demand for them
0: you know magazines were so important back then. Uh, and they really good. You can make or break a game or a system, you know, with a good review or a bad review. What was your relationship like with publishers then? And did they ever try and, like, bribe you in any ways to get, like, good reviews or anything? Did they ever try any tricks?
3: Generally, you know, we had good relationships with with publishers for the most part. And, you know, occasionally we'd write a bad review and and we'd get the inevitable phone call saying, you know, what went wrong with the game? Why didn't you like it? But for the most part, you know, they they, they were... Fairly hands-off. U.S. Gold was probably the the most hands-on sort of, you know, they pulled ads from the magazine a few times for, for, for us giving games bad reviews, particularly sort of the tier text arcade conversions of the late 90s that were really shoddy and badly put together. You know, we'd absolutely roast those and, and say they were, they were crap. And, you know, we'd get the inevitable phone call from U.S. Gold saying, that's it. We're pulling ads... From from your magazine, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, they'd always come back after a couple of months. You know, they'd forgive <laughs> us, or or we'd review something by them and give it a good score. But um, occasionally, we'd we'd have you know we'd we'd negotiate exclusives. Um, I, I remember us negotiating exclusive of Ghostbusters by Activision, and um, you know they they gave us the game, and and lo and behold, when the magazine came out, they'd also given the game to commodore user and i forget what other magazine it was but there were basically three covers with ghostbusters all saying exclusive review and uh, that really annoyed us and uh, you know sort of caused us not to trust activision for a good few years after that because they sort of stitched us up um just to get a cover story on on multiple magazines but,
0: that's a dirty trick there
3: <laughs> yeah it definitely wasn't wasn't good but in terms of sort of bribes and stuff like that that didn't really happen we did get you know sent obviously you know loads of you know freebies and t-shirts and got taken to places you know i mean i sega took me to um, the monaco grand prix to launch the game gear which was you know one of my favorite sort of freebies i ever got you know sort of a a free trip to monaco basically for the weekend and, and watch the grand prix you know that that nowadays you know that would be very much frowned upon but back then it wasn't seen as you know it was just seen as a promotional thing that you know you go to this event we'd talk about it in the magazine and post pictures of of us you know doing these events and it was publicity for for the company and you know it didn't really change our point of view at all about the game you know if the game came out we'd still slate it even if we'd been on some swanky event or been sent some really nice freebies or t-shirts or whatever because you know we couldn't you, you can't sell your credibility you know you all it takes is one review Saying that the game is good when it 's actually bad, and that 's your credibility absolutely blown um, completely and you know something that we, we we noticed sort of back in the day was um, when we sort of used to do research on readers, you know it would only take two them to buy two games on a review based on that you 'd done. Um, and that they didn't like those you know they didn't agree with the review if we said a game was good and they, they they the reader bought a game um the second time that happened um they would stop reading the magazine so we kind of realized very early on that um we had to try and get our reviews on target you know people would always disagree with with our reviews you know there there were always people that sort of you know wouldn't like a particular game or whatever but they would kind of come back to the magazine, but they wouldn 't be as trusting on on the reviews as they were before, um, because games were quite you know ten pounds for a game, particularly for a commodore game, was a lot of pocket money for a kid so they so having that trust with the the magazine was very important and 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 for the magazine to have the reader 's trust was also you know very important and and so Reviews, really, we had to be very careful with what we we said with our reviews to try and make sure that we were being perfectly fair. Very long-winded answer to your question, but uh, hopefully (laughs) I'm making my point.
2: (laughs) Well, you were working in a really kind of transitional period from 8-bit to 16-bit. How was that and kind of covering that period and all the hype at the time?
3: Oh, that was it. Was really exciting. I mean, it still to me is the most exciting period of of of, of, of sort of writing about video games for me personally. Um, you know, there there was just so so many new things going on between sort of 1989 um, and about 1992. You know, sort of we 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 essentially went from ZX spectrums and and sort of. Uh, commodore 64s and amigas to um pc engine and um and and mega drive also it was the dawn of handheld machines like the game boy and the Lynx, and those were very exciting we even had sort of early vr machines you know arcade machines were getting very sort of exciting and cutting edge uh during that period and they were just you know just lesser known, not lesser known, but sort of lesser successful consoles like the neo Geo to write about you know there was just a tremendous amount of change in technology with with the advent of of, of c d ROms and things like that. You could just see that that, that gaming was in the midst of a, a huge transition of technology going from sort of cassette loading to to cd ROms in the space of you know, just a sort of three or four years. So it was just tremendously exciting. Every month there seemed like something new and cool was happening. Yeah,
0: it's crazy to think that it all happened in such a short space of time. I guess you're right, we went from playing games like, you know, like you said, Ghostbusters on the Commodore 64 to like games like, you know, Seventh Guest and Mist and stuff like that within less than a decade. It was crazy, really.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, Seventh Guest was, when was that, 1993? 93, I want to say. yeah. yeah. So it it, is, it was a space of sort of you know sort of almost five or six years and yeah. um, just tremendous acceleration of technology and sort of uh, and video game gaming sort of concepts moving forward at a tremendous rate and 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 really shifting. I I, I kind of look at the sort of. That sort of early early to mid 90s as a sort of transitional point between sort of really old school gaming and sort of more like the modern era of gaming where things it definitely felt a lot more modern.
0: Well, it must have been a really exciting time to work on mean machines. I mean, like you said before that started life in CVG. How did it develop into its own title then?
3: Um, that was quite a lot of a, a lot of pestering of the publisher of, of CVG's publisher by me. In early 1990, you know, sort of, we were getting a lot of letters and and feedback from the Mean Machines column in Computer and Video Games. It, it was becoming increasingly clear that consoles were going to be the next big thing. You know, I really believed that in my heart, and so, um, you know, I said to the to, to CNVG's publisher, you know, let's let's make a magazine, and he he was hesitant at first, which you know was his job. You know, uh, he, he is his job to make successful profitable magazines and he wasn't quite sure whether the advertising market was really there for it so we started producing these one-off magazines called the complete guide to consoles uh, the computer and video games complete guide to consoles with a Me machines logo on it and those all sold incredibly well and we also got advertising pages booked in them so that sort of it was a proof of concept essentially yeah, it was clear that there was a readership out there that was interested in consoles enough to buy a magazine about it. So by the summer we got the green light to go ahead and make a dummy version of Mean Machines which is like a a sample copy of the magazine basically. 16 pages of sample editorial reprinted um to to, to make it into over and over again to make it into a magazine that we could then give to advertisers and test with readers to see whether they responded well to it and the focus groups we did with that magazine were very very positive indeed so the magazine got the green light from lord emap and we launched it in october of uh, 1990 and it it sold really well right out of the gate and in fact. the magazine sold out completely of its print run for the first five or six months, and we just kept printing more and more and more. And it was just clear that, that the magazine was just very popular and, and seemed to, to strike a chord with its readers and, and was sort of passed around the playground. And everyone that sort of saw the mag not everyone, but lots of people that saw the magazine – wanted it and would go out and buy it the following month for themselves. So it had this sort of exponential growth curve that um, put it on the path of becoming Britain's best-selling magazine full stop.
2: Yeah, it was selling...
3: In the the computer and video game category, obviously there were other magazines that sold better than us, but...
2: uh, Well, it was enormously successful. EMAP must have been very happy because it was selling 150,000 a month at one point.
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, EMAP made absolute bank out of it. And um, EMAP was sort of broken up into these little sort of mini companies almost where, you know, you had the sort of the, the, the car magazines and motorcycle magazines were... One part of EMAP and the computer titles were EMAP images, which was which is another part of EMAP. And really, Mean Machines helped and, and computer and video games success really sort of helped put that part of EMAP on the map. And they invested, you know, wanted, wanted us to produce more magazines. So, you know, we launched Megatech and uh, eventually split Mean Machines up into the official Nintendo magazine and Mean Machine Sega because you know, we could see there was an increasing market, and and specialising the magazines would would help them sell more, which they did. Even though by splitting Mean Machines into two magazines, we kind of lost we lost a little bit of what made me, the original run of Mean Machines really great, because the teams were split up and we were on different floors, and we lost some of the. Um, some of its personality, really. Um, it was still a fun magazine. Mean Machine Sega I still put a lot of time into and very fond of, but it just wasn't quite as anarchic and funny as the original Mean Machines was.
0: Well, speaking of funny parts of the magazine, the uh, Mean Job Letters page, that can be brutal. Um, did you have fun writing that and any like mem- any things that stick in your mind about it? Any memorable examples? Oh, God. Yeah, I d-
3: Just I always used to do it at the end of the month and sort of... T- Right when the magazine was about to finish it was one of the last things I would do, so I was always pretty manic when I was writing writing the responses and it was just weird sort of going into that mean job mindset. I'd put myself into sort of a mindset of if a letter was positive and fun, you know it would get a positive and fun response and if the letter was critical, then obviously you know we'd sort of we'd we'd be critical back. So, we used to make fun of readers' names and 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 you know say sort of things that probably would be politically incorrect these days. you know we weren 't overly racist or really unkind or anything like that. We would just sort of you know call people spazzes and stuff like that you know sort of not 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 the sort of thing you do these days, but it was just a sort of um it was done in a way to sort of be very interactive and to try and promote readers to be be original when they sent in letters to sort of and 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 to understand what what would happen when they did send in letters you know if they they would readers would definitely send in letters deliberately to goad us and to to get a response out of me and yob and that was really fun you know sort of sort of sparring with readers that take the piss out of us and we'd take the piss out of them back
0: and it gave us all a good giggle in the playground so you did your job
3: well (laughs) i mean that was ultimately the objective was to try and be as funny as possible and um and, and 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 make people laugh and a lot of the humor was sort of very much inspired by things like Vic Reeves big night out and friday night live the sort of the, the sort of the comedy shows of the era sort of that combined with the the banter, the sort of the inter-office banter that, that constantly flew around where we were always taking the piss out of each other and coming up with new ways of insulting one another. A lot of the insults that you saw in Mean Job were originally used on Mean Machines staff members by one another. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it was fun sort of getting to be creative and, and, and sort of and, and taking a piss in that kind of way.
2: Well, were there any systems that you thought would be really big and kind of failed abysmally? Like, I remember there was the GX4000 on the front cover.
3: Yeah, that was very much against my wishes. I wanted to put a PC engine on the cover of the magazine, but the publisher insisted on the GX4000 because he believed that we were going to get some advertisements for it and that the machine was going to be moderately popular yeah he was wrong of course and uh you know we ended up with a bit of egg on our faces putting gx4000 on the cover i don't i can't remember whether we actually reviewed any games I and mean, we might have reviewed a game in issue one but there were virtually no games for it and you know we didn't believe in it at all you know for, we were thinking or well, the, the publisher was also thinking of putting the Commodore 64, the,
0: whatever it was called, the... Well, the game system thing. Yeah,
3: this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was thinking... Of, the GS,
0: wasn't it? Yes. Yeah,
3: putting that on the cover as well. And I'm certainly glad we didn't do that. I mean, that was pretty much dead, the moment it arrived you know i mean i remember sitting down and explaining to him why this console wasn't going to work and he kind of said all right fair enough um you know we'll, we'll just we'll just stick with the the nes the master system the mega drive and the gx 4000 on the cover so you know <laughs> thank god
0: for that well future launched the official sega magazine i mean essentially that competed with Me machines so why did that kind of happen and why didn't Meme machines ever become official in the same way the nintendo magazine did
3: I'm not sure Future I mean obviously you know was was doing its its own thing at the time and it had Sega Power and that was the main competitor to Mean Machines. Mean Machines launched first and and sort of and and really demonstrated that there was a big market for console magazines. And so Future started launching and I can't remember which magazines came out and when, but Sega Power was a very early uh, future magazine and total was also the sort of the unofficial Nintendo magazine. And um, you know, they were good magazines. They were sort of very 90s style. I think I, I would like to think that, you know, sort of that some of Me Machine's sort of anarchic style was sort of influenced some of the way that Sega Power was written and presented. I think at that point it, we demonstrated that humor and interactivity was very important for a magazine at that point so you know the future guys were smart and and picked up on that and 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 made their magazines also very interactive and sort of fun to read so you know the Me machines always sold a little bit more than Sega Power but you know we, we we're in competition with one another and but it was friend more friendly competition definitely more friendly than sort of uh, zap and commodore user were the, the sort of the team members of of Sega Power and and Me Machines would often go to similar events and see one another so we kind of became friends you know, we we had a lot of commonalities working as we did on magazines and sort of had similar points of view about the readers and and, and and certain video games and certain personalities within the games industry that we would deal with on a regular basis, like PR people and stuff. So, you know, there was a lot for us. We had a lot in common. So, you know, inevitably, you know, we, we would sort of be very friendly towards one another when we, when we went to events and things like that.
2: Well, you ended up appearing uh, not just in magazines but also on the television uh, doing Games Master. How did you kind of land that gig? You ended up being the resident reviewer.
3: Yeah, that was interesting. You know, I, I remember getting a phone call out of the blue from the production company that that makes Games Master and, and they just said, you know, we're, we're producing a, a TV show and, you know, you're obviously very well known in magazine circles as being a reviewer and we'd, we'd like to, you know, you to appear on the show. Would you be interested in doing so? So of course, you know, for the, it was a no brainer. Yeah. Definitely wanted to do it. And it was good publicity for the magazine. Uh, didn't get paid for doing any of it. It was just all done on, you know, for, for free essentially. But, you know, we, we got to publicize our magazines to a TV audience and that just helped us grow our circulations a bit. So, you know, while we didn't benefit from doing it personally, you know, we, we, it did benefit the magazines for sure. So yeah, I started making, I was doing all sorts of TV in the sort of the, that, that, that period of the early to mid nineties, I did a quite a few different sort of daytime chat shows on, on video games and quickly found out that they were incredibly challenging to do but it sort of shows like about you know my my son is addicted to video games and i'm worried that he's it's going to you know affect him in a bad way and i would go on these shows and defend video games these sort of talk shows but they were always it was always difficult dealing with emotional people and sort of trying to come up with these logical responses basically saying you know, you're talking nonsense. Video games aren't harmful to kids and, you know, not going to turn your kid into a zombie or a raving lunatic. I was doing things like that. And, and also, I'd, I'd, whenever there was a major news story, I'd, I'd go on BBC Radio or the BBC News um, briefly to sort of give perspective on a, a new console or a new game that was very popular. So I was doing all sorts of stuff at the time. It was
0: really fun. Well, there were some huge gaming events in that era too. I remember stuff like obviously we had Sonic Tuesday, Mortal Monday. Are there any kind of memorable launches for you around that time?
3: It's weird because because of the nature of sort of writing about video games, the launches didn't make much not, not much sense, but they kind of didn't make much impact with us because they were more focused towards our readers. So we would, you know, we would write about Sonic Tuesday. Uh, but when it happened we'd already you know we'd already had those games for for months and had reviewed them and played them to death so it, it you know it sort of while we recognized them as being great momentous occasions they didn't have much impact to the magazine personally because you know sort of like i said we'd already played the games and 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 weren't anticipating them like the readership was you know who, who went out that on that first day and, and, and bought whatever it was, Sonic the Hedgehog, with, with their pocket money and, um, and went home. And it was a sort of a defining moment of their video gaming life to do that. So we don't quite have those same memories, unfortunately.
0: Well, I mean, you left the UK to move to the US and work for Virgin. How did that move come about and what convinced you to make that move? I was actually sent on assignment to
3: Virgin Interactive in in Southern California. They'd just been heavily invested in by Blockbuster and they had tons of money and were sort of producing all sorts of new games like, you know, sort of the Disney games like Aladdin. And so I went on assignment to visit this studio, which was all kitted out with the latest technology and development stuff and, and SGI machines and things like that. And It was pretty amazing experience, sort of getting to sort of interview all the principal technologists at Virgin and and talk to them about what games they were producing and where they thought games were going. And it was just very exciting. While I was looking at their games, I would always give feedback on, on on games that we were looking at, sort of preview wise. You know, this looks good. I like that. I'm not sure about this. And you know, as I was doing that one of the the guys at Virgin said, you know, this is really interesting and and, and quite valuable feedback for us. Would you like to do this for us full time? And, you know, I didn't really think at that time that, you know, sort of jobs like that sort of existed. It was almost like early testing of video game software as a sort of a resident tester. You know, I, I, I said, yeah I'm, but would definitely be interested in doing that, you know particularly if it meant moving out to california you know and sort of i i i loved loved America I used to visit quite regularly to go to c e s shows and things like that and so i was sort of you know i basically said yeah let's let's talk some more and we went back and forth and um I was there for a few days and at the end of that few day period Virgin made me a sort of a formal job offer and said, "You know, yeah, we we definitely like you to come out to the states and and do this job of of, of sort of being our full time tester." And so, you know, I went back to the UK, thought about it, and and just thought, "Well, this is a really interesting opportunity." And at that time, I was just a little bit getting a little bit bored of computer—not necessarily computer games magazines—but we were sort of stuck in a bit of a rut at Emap with. I wanted to launch a new magazine and, and I wasn't allowed to do so. I wanted to launch a magazine was basically would have been very similar to the to edge magazine, right. but the, the, the publisher didn't want to launch another magazine at that point. So I kind of, you know, I wanted something new to get my teeth into and this opportunity just felt like the right move. So I, I moved out to the states in early 1994.
0: What was it like moving from, like you know, commentating on the industry, being a journalist, to actually working in the industry? How did you find that transition?
3: It was it was pretty tough, you know, moving to the states. Nobody knew who I was at that point, you know, so didn't know my background very well. So I didn't quite have that same sort of uh, critical uh, credibility. Um, So sort of, you know, when I used to criticize the games that were in development you know initially i had quite a lot of hostility from the producers of the games and the programmers of the games you know sort of who is this guy and why is he criticizing our beloved game that we're making but after a while it it, it you know it, i began to sort of establish myself and it was just it was just a very different kind of job being being sort of within development and and you know I I I still spent a tremendous amount of time playing other people's games to make sure that Virgin's games were competitive so I was still playing a tremendous amount of games pretty much everything that was being released at the time I was looking at so so that aspect of of sort of my lifestyle didn't change much I was still the sort of the main point person for all things gaming um but it you know it was definitely weird not having that voice that monthly voice in magazines, uh, I definitely missed that a lot that 's kind of why I went back into video gaming after i'd been at, at virgin for about three and a half years i, I got back into video games journalism at i g n in, in the very 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 early days of i g n when it was a bunch of disparate websites and basically i was um, I applied for a for a job as editorial director and the, the objective was to take. All of these disparate sites that formed the Imagine Games network and consolidate them into into one network and one voice and, and and essentially establish what what would eventually become IGN.com.
2: Before we get into IGN, I was just going to ask you about an amazing title at Virgin, which was uh, Frill Kill, and I remember that was kind of scrapped and then leaked online. Um, you worked on that, right? What happened?
3: Yeah, that was, uh, it, it was originally my idea. Um, you know, it, 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 at, the, at that particular period of time, the ESRB ratings had just come out and had been established. And I remember the president of Virgin Interactive, Martin Alper, I was talking to him one lunchtime about the rating system. And I said, you know, now that games have got proper ratings, why don't we make a an adult rated game that's like a fighting game that's you know sort of sexualized and 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 kind of a little bit grubby and and sort of fun and and risque. naughty and and very risque. And and Martin said, "Yeah, sure. Now we've got ratings. You know, we can build it as knowing." you know what it's going to be and market it in that way and so we we sat down and and came up with a sort of a a four-player fighting game with characters that sort of were very sexualized and sort of uh, and and odd you know sort of I'm trying to remember actually it's a long time ago but it was it was basically it was a game sort of set in hell just sort of the combatants would have to fight one another and all each combatant was a a larger-than-life version of what they'd been in real life, and they were all sort of scumbags in real life. So, you know, we had yeah, all these. I think there dudes. was
2: a, a dominatrix, a That's doctor, right. a gimp on stilts, and this kind of really huge monster guy.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, 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 the the characters were all very odd, and 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 basically, we put it into development and. It was actually quite a a fun game to play. You know, the stuff that leaked online is very, very early. And and I have a feeling that if we'd really managed to keep development going, unfortunately, Virgin pretty much shut down um, before the game was complete. And uh, EA bought all the rights to virgins games and uh, decided to to scrap thrill kill because it was just too risque for them and uh, it was pretty a pretty disgusting game but it was designed to be that way and it would have been very controversial i'm sure uh, you know it's an interesting what if if it had actually been released i think we'd have got a lot of stick for it but i think a lot of people would have enjoyed playing it because like i said it was a what was there was pretty fun to play and and it had some quite innovative lock-on mechanics and different combo moves and things. It was very much sort of a inspired by sort of Street Fighter and other fighting games of the period, but it was 3D.
0: Well, he did move back to journalism um, in 1997 when he went to work for Imagine Games Network, IGN. And, And that was a really interesting time. So, I mean, we're talking 97, that's very early in the web's commercial life. I mean, I think I got online maybe the year before at school, but it really wasn't like, you know, everyone didn't have it in the house then and you had to grow you grew that online network was it hard to convince people that this was going to be the future and that online was a space that you should be investing time and effort into
3: i was really into online at the time i was you know i'd been online since well you know since the early compunet days with the commodore 64 we used to log on to bulletin boards and things like that and on and, and, and cnet which were were very early online services so i uh, you know i was I, I just felt that that, that, that it was uh, had enormous potential. So when I got um, invited to, to, to join Imagine and, and and work online, it it just seemed like a you know a, an incredible opportunity. And unfortunately, not everybody shared that view at Imagine. Um, obviously, all the people that were working online believed in it, but most of them were sort of. Most of the people were sort of the very very junior guys that were working on magazines that kind of got the sort of web thrown at them as you know right, can you take care of this because you know most of the more seasoned journalists weren't really interested in it they didn't they didn't necessarily see the potential in it and just felt that it was a bit remedial and so we we had this small team. It was probably about six six months to a year of, of sort of working on IGN when it was all essentially made up of a, a bunch of different websites that were dedicated to the magazines. And we decided to, to sort of to rebrand the whole thing. And rather than write these sort of websites that really echoed what the magazine was doing, you know, the magazine would publish a bunch of stuff and we'd publish that stuff online. After the magazine and came out, you know that just didn't make sense to me. It's like, look, you know, we 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 can publish stuff every day. Let's start doing news and reviews and publishing it as soon as it's ready. Once we started doing that, you could begin to see the penny drop. Uh, imagine, and you know, the bosses were very forward thinking and and were supporting of it, but you could see other people around the company were beginning to sort of get the sort of the power of the internet, the fact that somebody would come in bring in a game to, to preview one day, we would write the preview you know that afternoon and be able to publish it in the evening, uh, whereas the magazine would take, you know, it would take another month for it for them to, to write write it out and, and 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 publish it. So we finally began to see that sort of shift in terms of people were like, oh wait, this Internet thing isn't just a load of old crap. And it, it's actually a, you know, it's a useful and timely tool. And at that point, it was probably 98, 99. Um, and, you know, people were increasingly coming online and finding IGN. I mean, it was, uh, I think at one point, it was the 27th biggest website in the world. Uh, you know, a lot of gamers um, got online um, early and, and would would flock to, the early websites like Gamespot and IGN, and it just drove enormous amounts of traffic, and 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 that really puts on a path where IGN was eventually spun off from Imagine Games, which was Future Publishing at that point, was spun off into its own company, and we had a sort of uh, a bunch of venture capitalists came in to transform the the company into a. To a major online presence, um, which that that particular project I spent quite a lot of time on and, and, and mostly fighting against the venture capitalists who wanted to change ign into a into a different kind of site and and I, I, I sort of didn 't agree with with what they wanted to do. Fortunately, we managed to keep IGN intact, and you know it 's still
0: going today well I mean you took a, a break from games journalism after that you went into marketing. Um, and online retailing. But then I know you came back and you've done stuff like, you know, work for Future US and GamePro Media and US Gamer doing their website, The Game Network, where you are editor until 2017. I mean, what's kind of your involvement now? I mean, are you still involved in, in gaming at the moment then? Or, or what yeah, I'm doing? still
3: involved in gaming. I am now a qualitative analyst for a for a market research company we research video games so what what I do is I spend a lot of time watching people play video games that are in development and creating reports that analyze player response to things like you know interfaces gameplay or you know whole entire games it it depends on the particular project So I create these reports that then, you know, go back to the the client whose game it is and and they use those to hopefully make their games better.
0: Well, Jazz, it's amazing that you've still got the passion for gaming after all these years. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate you taking a bit of time out to share those memories with us, especially on a a very warm California day.
3: (laughs) No problem. It was fun. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me onto the show and uh, I look forward to hearing it.